Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Eric Davis. He's an author, journalist, scholar, public speaker, and host of the Expanding Mind Podcast. His writings have ranged from rock criticism to cultural analysis to creative explorations of esoteric mysticism. In this episode, we get to know Eric and his fascination with randomness and chance, We discuss his new book, High Weirdness, and what it was like growing up in the 70s in California. Eric offers insight on the beauty of resonance and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric, and if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. So you've said the weirdest years of your life were 13, 14, and 15 when you had paranormal experiences and dreams. Can you share one of these weird experiences with us? Uh, the one that popped in my mind, like I didn't, I didn't go searching for it, um, was, uh, I had a little altar in my room. My room is pretty, pretty peculiar. I covered it with, with pictures and, you know, cut out from magazines and, you know, pictures of, you know, medieval witchcraft scenes and Jimmy Page. And there was a little, there was a little soft core porn hidden there, you know, like when my mom wouldn't see it. And just like, it was like a, a, a universe of images, you know, like a good dense collage of, of things. And I had a little altar um, with some jade plants on it and this stone Buddha that my friend Senzo Joe um, had, had stolen from someone's lawn and given to me for my 13th birthday. So I had this, this Buddha there and I'd light, light a little bit of incense and I'd like, you know, scrape a little resin from my pipe and take a little hit and quote unquote meditate or whatever. You know, I don't know what, if I would call that meditation now, what I was doing, I was probably more like transinduction, self-transinduction is probably a better way of describing it, which is not unrelated to meditation. That's a kind of interesting conversation. Uh, but in any case, one time I was just sitting there and I was, I'd sort of sit there kind of with my eyes half open and sometimes I'd stare at things and, and I was staring at the Buddha and, and he just opened his eyes and looked back at me. <laughs> and it was really, it was really quite, you know, a not- noticeable hallucination, you know, and maybe I was a little bit stoned, but not the kind of stone that would really justify that degree of a hallucination. So a lot of, a lot of things happened at that altar uh, that were interesting. And another one that came to mind that was very subtle and has stayed with me. Um, uh, I don't really know what to, how to, what to conclude from it exactly, but I was sitting outside. Uh, there was a little porch right outside my, my room in, in the rain and it was raining and the rain and the, there was like a, a, a loud drip right in front of me where the rain, bump, 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 you know, where the, where the rain was dripping. Mm-hmm. And I was meditating again, probably slightly stoned. And, uh, I was sort of like playing with focusing on different chakras as I understood them at the time, energy centers. Um, and I just sort of probably read about that in a book. I wasn't taking yoga classes or, you know, going to any formal spiritual instruction or anything. I was all from books and, you know, high school lore uh, among heads. And I'm sitting there listening to this, the, the beat. And I noticed that if I change the focus of my attention from, let's say, the third eye to the belly, that the pitch 
of the drip would change. So if it was up, if I was on my third eye, it would be higher, like boop, boop, boop. And then I would be like sink my attention to my belly and then it would be boom, boom, boom. And I just sat there for a while. And I went, that's crazy. That can't happen. And I kept doing it. And it just, it was a consistent effect for that, uh, that experience. Cause when you, you think about it, you're like, well, who's doing that? Like what, what your brain, like, what does that mean? You know, like, what does it mean to like shift attention to different parts of your body and then like listen to the outside environment through that, you know, right. anyway, that just was a very wonderful, subtle kind of uh, insight into the, you know, strange and magical connections between inside and outside and attention, you know, attention is so strange. What is attention? You know, you like, you hold a pencil and you like, you can like look at the point and then like really look at the point. I mean, like full on, like you're gripping it, you know, but where are, 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 are these muscles in your eyes that you're feeling? Is it like your mind is like focused and then you like say, no, I'm going to open my attention. And then you get the, the full diffuse field, including the peripheral and there's a soft focus. And you're like, okay, that's partly something my eyes are doing, my physical eyes are doing, but it's obviously something else. Where is that happening? Right. <laughs> that's advanced level attention for a 13-year-old to be sitting in his room, a little bit stoned, not freak out when a Buddha statue stares back at him and also be able to check his heart chakra and third eye. How were you this advanced at the age of 13? Uh, that's a good question. I was probably, that probably happened when I was 14 and not say that there's a necessarily a big difference, but, um, but yeah, it was, I was, that, that was sort of the full year. Well, let's see. Um, I grew up in the kind of wreckage of the spiritual counterculture in coastal Southern California. So there was a lot of the residue of the whole hippie experiment, including the whole 1970s world of alternative spirituality gurus, uh, travel to India, you know, and these weren't my, it wasn't my family, um, but it was just sort of in the air. Yeah. And I've always been attracted to religion and fantasy and visionary experience. It's just always been part of my, my world. Even when I was a little kid, reading fantasy novels or, or you know, mythology and um, and I started, you know, taking acid in when I was 13. So I say I went from weed to acid pretty fast. Uh, and, you know, and that was around and it was, you know, there was a kind of generalized drug culture. And, you know, in, in my high school years, we'd go to, you know, go to the Hare Krishna temple, you know, sometimes we run into like literally like wandering hippies wearing white robes and they, you know, we just hang out with them for a while. I mean, it was a very magical time. You know, there was, people in the high school who were practicing witches and they had, you know, books of shadows and, you know, we'd go to occult bookstores and there was all these cheap paperbacks that were left over from the hip, you know, the generation before us and mm -hmm. reading be here now and reading Carl's Castaneda, you know, as ways to kind of organize our trips. And then I also had a whole crew of friends, uh, some of whom were like really smart hippie freak types and so we were sharing information and reading about the history of psychedelics and so we just you know i was a reader so i i the, the, that whole side of things was very available uh through these through these books and you know when i'd read it i'd be like well i want to have that experience or you know i'm open to that and had a lot of a lot of lucid dreams 
Um, things got really dark. Things got really light. Uh, it was a very interesting time. Yeah, not only were they the weirdest years, but it sounds like you had to grow up fast. What a lot of people experience, uh, first experience with psychedelics is just like a very rapid growth spurt. Well, you know, it's, that's an interesting one. I, I thought a lot about this time, you know, as I, I listened to other people and like, you know, and, and I go, my, I mean, I almost feel embarrassing that I took acid when I was 13 because it shocks people and they think it's wrong and I shouldn't say it because then it's like you're being a role model. And if I'm honest, I'm like, I'm, I'm really glad I took psychedelics when I was at that age. Um, so I have two, two things to say about that. One is that, well, why, why do I say that? Because that's the age when in traditional societies, boys go through rites of puberty. So what, what are those rites? What's actually happening in a lot of those? I mean, you can't generalize too much because, you know, all these cultural groups are different, but there, you know, there's a real consistency about some kind of pr uh, ritual, some kind of ordeal. That's right. often difficult, sometimes hair-raisingly difficult. Sometimes that's when you get circumcised. But another part of it is that there's often an initiation, and it's an initiation into secrecy, into the ancestors, and to some degree into death. Mm -hmm. And that that initiation is what lets you die as a child and become a young man. And we don't have that in the West. We don't have anything like that in the West. And I think that properly, you know, set up, and that's the second thing I'm going to say in a moment, <clears throat> in the right circumstances, drugs generally, but particularly psychedelics, are the best we get. That's like what you get, at least in my generation, you know, where I was able to go to something like the Grateful Dead concert when I went, you know, when I think I went when I was 15 the first time. Um, and that was already kind of a tradition. You know, it was a culture. It had its own rituals. It was organic. Uh, it had older people in it who were more familiar. And you could go and take psychedelics and dance to the Grateful Dead. And it had that kind of sense of like a cultural, tribal passage, you know? Right. And then even when we were just like wandering around suburbia and, you know, you get these adventures and get freaked out and was that a ghost and, you know, mind games and some scary stuff for sure. You know, real scary stuff sometimes. Nothing like um, actively bad. And that's my second point, which is that I was very lucky because I grew up and my friends grew up at the end in a, the, a very permissive time. So this is sort of before, just before a kind of lockdown came on, like my campus was open campus, you know, five years after I left it, it had, it was a closed campus and there was eventually security gates and blah, blah, blah. But I was at the sort of tail end of this very permissive period. So things were really mellow and our parents weren't judgmental. So I'd stay with my friends overnight and we'd go out all night and come in at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, start watching Saturday Night Live and whatever. It was just it was very comfortable and very easy. So I was very privileged. Like it would be a totally different story if I was, you know, growing up in a, in a difficult situation in the, in the city environment where, you know, there's a lot of crazies out there and you don't want to be on psychedelics at three o'clock in the morning, walking around Morningside Heights or whatever it is. So it was a very comfortable and easy place to do this. So I think that in some ways you could say I grew up fast because I grew up intellectually or, or spiritually because I had to kind of deal with these weird experiences and was reading a lot to like make sense of them. 
But in other ways, it was kind of uh, easy because it wasn't like the kind of growing up that uh, that people who don't who don't have as privileged a situation have to go through with like poverty and you know abuse and you know par- par- rough parents and you know all that kind of real world stuff that so many people also have to go to that also makes you grow up uh, fast. So I was really l- lucky in having the right kind of temperament and the right environment. And it wasn't easy. Like I, I had, you know, psychologically was pretty weird, you know, dude, not, not, all, not that happy in a lot of ways, kind of obsessed with the, with the dark in a lot of ways. And, um, you said you were lucky, but also you, you can't help but notice that you were also responsible and you wanted you wanted to learn. Like you made the conscious effort to, like you said, read about them and reflect on them and grow from them, not just use them like psilocybin or as an intoxicant. Uh, that's true. I mean, I did. We also use plenty of intoxicants in a, in a thoughtless, amusing way, like, you know, entertainment and uh you know, we, if, 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 you know, sometimes we would be coming on to window pane in the, uh, you know, on the, on the bluffs overlooking the ocean and watching the sunset and the, the, the magisterial weave of the stars emerge with these sort of cosmic echoes. And other times we would be like, Hey man, there's a surfer kegger over it, like, you know, down the suburban street. Let's go and crash it, drink their beer. <laughs> so is there anything wrong with that? No, no. I, I like, I'm, I'm a sacred and profane guy. For me, the sacred is the sacred and the profane. The dance between the sacred and profane is the sacred. So that's sort of, for me, that was kind of like, again, a, a perfect way. The Grateful Dead are like that too. It's a party, but it's also something else. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, but that, where does that come from? I don't know. You know, I've always been a, 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 a thinky, thinky dude and, and also really interested in ex- experience. And, and I think I, I was lucky in that I had a crew of, 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 uh, uh, some of whom were really smart, uh, dudes and others were really like courageous and, and foolhardy and fun. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of a, a little magical, magical time. Mm-hmm. always being interested in experience you know i like tequila but mezcal is like tequila with soul with actual life experience and continuing with this analogy was there an event or inflection point in your life where you made the leap from tequila to mezcal i love the analogy as a as a as a passionate mezcal drinker mm-hmm. although i have to give it up to tequila in the sense that in the in the you know like before i, I probably i didn't have my first mezcal of quality I mean that we had mezcal back in the day when we would go on like castaneda like adventures. One time I went down to Mexico and we ate a bunch of shrooms and hiked up a mountain and we were drinking like cheap mezcal with the worm, a cartoon on it. And that has a certain kind of spirit, like a low vibrant spirit to it. But I didn't get, I didn't really have a, a fine mezcal until the, the mid nineties in, in, in New Mexico. Uh, uh, but the but even with the rest of the alcohols, I remember like if I think back, like of the of the like the the adventurous drunks that I had when I was a teenager, the weirder ones were all with tequila. <laughs> so even tequila, there's like still like that plant is in there, and that plant is not a grain. You know, it's like it's a it's a different thing that has a spirit to it. So. But in terms of my own life, that is a really good question. Wow. I don't know how to, I don't know if I can respond to that. I'm trying to think of like another sort of, um, sort of analogy for that. That's, uh, 
I guess it might be, I guess it might be uh, sort of learning how to meditate what I would say properly as opposed to just kind of getting tranced out, mm-hmm. you know, like the trancing is, is cool. And I did that for a long time and I thought, it, and I, you know, I'd still call it meditation. It was concentration practice, but I was driving it into kind of drug states. So it was like, I wanted to get high. I wanted to get altered. Uh, and that gave it a kind of, in your analogy, tequila twist. And then at some point I was like, wait a second, there's another way to go through these same spaces with a different kind of intentionality that has to do with clarity and, and presence and nowness mm-hmm. and, and not striving for some state. And that was like the mezcal moment. When you drink mezcal neat compared to mixed, it's much more intimate and intense. Similarly, what filters and distractions have you removed from your life to focus on what matters most? Well, I'll just talk about where I am lately with that uh, because it's sort of an ongoing process. Uh, And, you know, like a lot of people, I find myself overly distracted uh, by trivialities by some of them are necessary trivialities. A lot of them aren't and they just become that way like email and like suddenly I have all this stuff and oh, I should follow this link and somebody sent me this thing and you know, I can, you can spend your whole day kind of drifting and then like, whoa, where did I, did I ever collect myself in any of that process or give time to my own, uh, my own search or my own experience. But um, I think right now it's being, willing just to sit there like there's a moment oh the dinner's coming in 20 minutes and there's like oh I have 20 minutes I can answer that email or I can like oh we got to clean up that thing and there's this kind of constant treadmill and even when you're chilling there's a little bit of a treadmill you're like yeah okay I'm kicking back but I'm gonna read this book and then I'm going to put on this record. Oh, I've been wanting to hear this record in a while. Oh, it's a good record. And like, oh, halfway through the record, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'll read another book. And you're like, you're still on that train, or at least I'm still on the train. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of turning a corner where sometimes, not that often, and you, if you work too hard, it's a paradox. It's like meditation. So like you work too hard on it. You're not doing it. You're like, I'm just going to sit here now. You know, no, no, that's not the point. The point is sometimes you like find yourself just sitting there. That negative space or that void, we always want to fill it instead of just exploring it. You know, it, that, so to me, that's a really like, I'm, that's like drinking, that's like sipping the moment neat because you're not like adding this other thing. Like, oh, this is, this is a good, I got a moment here. I'm going to put in some, you know, some uh, citrus juice of uh, listening to music and round it off with a splash of, you know, a book or something. It's like, no, I'm just going to be in this limpid, clear, nothing and and just try not to fill it in even with like the mind going oh well now i have time to think about that that that, you know i'm gonna do that podcast tomorrow so what are we gonna talk about oh i mean i should make sure to say that you know that's something else we do even if we're not actually physically doing anything so it's not meditating either it's not it's not about entering into any state of calm it's just like just just sit there and i think Pascal had a line about that. It's like, like all this, I can't, I'm going to mangle it. It's a famous one, but I, I can't quite remember it. It's like all the, uh, so much evil in the world is caused by man's inability to sit alone in a room. <laughs> right. So we're going to see a lot of evil. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, my wife was saying that like the divorce rates in, in China and domestic violence rates and stuff are, aren't looking so pretty. I mean, I don't know how you judge those numbers from China, but, uh, you know, I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I have a I have a really nice, uh, blessed kind of domestic situation. And I'm I'm like, wow, if people have like difficulties and the kids and and they're not not used to spending all this time together. You know, I work from home, so it's really not that different for for me and my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people for whom it is different, and they got the kids and whatever, like I, my heart goes out to the struggles people have. Right. It, it's it's not much different for me either. But for some reason, it's worse when there's limitations put on us. When you said mentioned sitting with your thoughts, we want to fill them in or add things. When really that's just diluting that experience. It's like sometimes we just fear the full strength of the present moment. Yeah, and I think it's because it's not it's not strong in the way that we're used to registering strength or or vividness. You know, if I put on the 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 tune I love really, you know, at a good healthy volume on good speakers, it's so vivid. It's so animated. It's so alive. It so stirs me up and engages me. And I'm like, that's, you know, it's like, that's life, you know? And, uh, and that could be in any sensory domain. Um, but there is a kind of just being, just sitting there loafing, you know, there's a little bit of thought going on, but there's not really, and it's, so it's not vivid in the same way, but on the other side of that, that gap or that, vagueness there's something that's extremely vivid that's there all the time that's now you know the screen of now upon which the contents of our experience are organizing themselves there's just this space that never wavers and you can get little glimpses of it you know and that's partly what certain kinds of meditation are about or like cultivating just this limpid presence with nothing necessarily going on. And sometimes things go on, but the point is to just recognize that larger frame. But I think it's sometimes available just in the simple process. I like a lot of people sit outside, get that vibe. You know, you're just sitting there kind of looking at the birds and then you're just sitting there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a really nice day where you're, where you feel relaxed and it, there's, it's bright or there's, there's a cool breeze or, you know, it's it, where it's a really delicious day outside. I think that's, that's also people can kind of get into that space there at the beach or something like that. So it is available. So switching gears here, I had mission manager of SpaceX, Andrew Rader on the podcast a while back. He wrote the book beyond the known, how exploration created the modern world and will take us to the stars. He made the case that humans are explorers and exploration and technological progress have always been linked. And you make the case that technology and spirituality have always been intrinsically linked throughout human history. Can you offer a theory as to why this is so? Uh, in terms of my argument, um, it really has to do with communication, uh, that whatever spirituality and uh, religion are, and there are many things, one thing they definitely are, are ways of, of communicating and ways of creating if you will, a kind of theater, you know, like if you think about a shaman, shamanic performance on the, in the, the, you know, the steps of Siberia 10,000 years ago, 
you know, it's got this big code and the, the code is hanging with all these little metal objects. There's a lot of metal objects in that traditional shaman and it, and it shakes and makes noise and whatever else you want to say the shaman's doing on some astral plane or realm of the unconscious or whatever, it's also a kind of performance. So once you include that there's communication, you know, there's something like, you know, a holy book or a, a message or a sacred uh, icon or, a, you know, something like that, and that there's this kind of performative di- di- dimension to it, those things are always also about how we explore tools, just the way that music is always about technology because we, we're using something to make the sound. So you, just, you have a, you, you, the primitive violin, a primitive uh, flute, you know, those are tools, and it's, you know, I think it's, it's always important to make a distinction between tools and technology, like technology is a kind of system of, of interlinked tools that, that kind of create a whole ecology. And that's different than like a single tool. You know, I'm just a farmer and I get a, I have a, like a, a primitive ax that I can knock stuff over or whatever. I'm not completely in a technological environment the way that I will be when I live in the city and I'm surrounded by all these human artifacts. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of the obvious example is the way that like the, the, the medium of the holy word becomes a sort of singular technology. So when you have like religions of the book with Christianity and Judaism and, and later Islam, those are all religions of the book. They declare themselves as that. Well, the book is just a media tech and it has different forms. You know, in the Jewish religion, it's a scroll. But in early Christianity, the early Christians didn't use scrolls. They adopted the Codex book, our modern form of the book, which was originally not a sacred object, but just something that people would keep notes in or a ledger that a businessman would keep records in. And the Christians started to distribute the letters of Paul and other and the gospels in these codex books that that enabled people to like flip pages and go, Oh, look, look at this passage on page 12 or whatever. So we're always relating with our media technology as part of our spiritual practice, either through scriptures, but also in, in terms of uh, these, the theater of, of religion, the, the, the holy, um, Right, the the mass, the ritual um, involves these kinds of technological elements. So that's sort of where I start, and then I just kind of go through the whole thing and show that the reverse is true as well. That even as we in the secular world, you know, pursue technologies that are scientific and tech and technological, the the energy and the fantasy that we bring to those. Is itself also often tied to the mythopoetic imagination or even to ideas in in religion. Uh, so that's sort of my basic uh, my basic line. That reminds me of a quote: "Technology is a way of organizing the universe so that people don't have to experience it." Mm-hmm. So maybe technology is numbing us to nature, and this quarantine will allow us to reconnect. You know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I can't imagine that, you know, I, uh, that this hasn't been an opportunity for people to just, you know, s- slow down and be in your body a little more. Go out, like appreciate, like you really appreciate the walk, man. You're like, wow, mm-hmm. I'm walking outside. This is great. <laughs> so, 
you know, I think it's, uh, you know, we might as well make, make uh, some lemonade from, from these lemons. And, and it, you know, might be really, uh, a, I, and I, I can only assume that for a lot of people, it is a time of reflection and also just realizing just how crazy distracted we all were and to some degree still are with just the busyness of, of life. I mean, everybody's busy now, you know, everybody all the time, the old people, people living in the rural, everybody's busy all the time. It's like, it's like this epidemic busyness. And, you know, I, I, and, and then all the distractions we fill that with or that we seek through that. And while some people are probably going stir crazy and can't wait for nothing more than to just return to that zone, I suspect more people than you'd think are, are kind of shifting that and may come out with a different sensibility and a different sense of what they want in their lives or what kind of environment they want to create for their families and friends. Uh, we will see. I thought we could talk a little bit about the language of resonance. So cult thinking or magical thinking connects ideas and resonance as a physical wave process is a great metaphor for the way that ideas connect. Is it through resonance and music and language that you achieve oneness or connection with the whole cosmic community? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, that was one of the, the ideas that I, I explored in high weirdness in my last book that I was sort of most intrigued by. And I think that I, I, I said some newish things, although, you know, other people have been talking about it, which is just this wonderful analogy of resonance. And, you know, it's, it's all over new age language, but it's also, if you trace back the idea, you find it very deeply rooted in, in magical thinking. I mean, a traditional kind of Western magical thinking in terms of the sympathy between like things. Um, and so it's, a, it's one of those analogies that while it is an analogy, because it's rooted in physical fact, like the, the physics of sound and the physics of waves, will lead you towards this phenomena of resonance, um, whether you know, you're thinking about it uh, allegorically or not, uh, that um, it's, it just keeps on giving. So I've come, to, I've come to a sort of mixed feeling about it. Like I don't think it's either good or bad, or it's, it could be both, you know, or you know, productive or destructive. Um, I think that uh, resonance is a way of entering into like a collective field. So for, for example, if you're in a, you know, it, it, as a, again, as an analogy, if you're in like a crowd and the crowd is suddenly terrified that your own, the emergence of your own terror or your own anger uh, or suddenly you have a riotous feeling in your heart, that kind of collective phenomenon is in some ways a, a practice, you know, a process of resonance. But at the same time, it's also one of the ways that we, we seek out things that are really going to feed us. Like I could, you know, w watch, uh, uh, you know, 10, you know, whatever, 50 clips that my friends send me, like, this is my favorite video of the year, but there'll be a few that really hit and, and, we could say, and, you know, people obviously well, I really resonate with that, meaning like more than an idea, more than a story, there's something about the flavor of it that hits really deep the way that like we're in tune, if you will. So resonance, thinking through resonance helps us like 
approach reality as a kind of constant tuning process. You know, that was one of the Buddha's metaphors for meditation was like a string on an instrument that you're kind of constantly keeping in tune. You know, it's not like you set it and you're done. It's like it's a constant process. And in a way, our sensibility is is always like probing the world, or this is one way of living, where you're always kind of probing, probing the world for those resonances, which might just be in a in a book you're reading or somebody, you know, you overhear a, a, a phrase from the other table and it kind of hits you. Um, and, you know, even synchronicities, they often take the form of that kind of resonance, like what's happening in a synchronicity. This one thing that's before me in a physical way has suddenly invoked some other order of meaning that's so intense that it feels like it's a setup, like that somebody Invent, you know, created this as like I'm being written by something. Like that's a powerful feeling. That synchronicity. W one way of describing what's happening is resonance. It's like you know, this one object is is calling up, you know, another, you know, meaning. Like here's an example. Here's one, the one I was like to tell. Um, I was at the Rainbow Gathering in 1991 in in uh, Vermont, and I, was, I was leaving. It was the last day. And so I was, I was carrying my stuff down the hill and I came across these, this group of freaks doing Sufi dancing, which isn't like the twirling actual Sufi dancing. It's like a hippie kind of uh, uh, group uh, folk dance that was developed in the 70s mm -hmm. where you sing sacred songs from different traditions and do these kind of line dance, you know, cir circle dances. Right. And it was the same group that I, that I had seen five years earlier at another rainbow gathering. So I was like, wow, this is great. I even recognize some of the people. And so I did that for a while. And by far the, the song that moved me the most, uh, this one kind of guy who looked kind of like a priest, like a Byzantine priest or something led. And it was a song to Ahura Mazda, who is the, the being of light in the Zoroastrian religion. So Zoroastrian religion is the first religion of light and darkness where like light is good and darkness is bad. And it, it has that primal Western dualism in it um, but it's also in some ways the first religion in many ways the first religion of light very powerful so ahura mazda is the good guy mm -hmm. so that really broke blew you know broke me open you know the whole spirit wow you know and then i gather my things and i went down and i you know as we got closer and closer to the to the parking lot it was like oh shoot i'm gonna go through that portal i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna go back to the world i've been up in the hills with the hippies for a week and now i'm going back to the world and I put my foot on the tarmac and a car, because there were a lot of cars leaving, a car backed up in a, in a little bit frightening way, like, and then kind of slammed on the brakes right in front of me. And I look down and I look at the make of the car and it's a Mazda. So, you know, on the one level, that's just a random event, but because that word, which, which is where it comes from, I mean, Mazda is like light. So it's like they, when they named the car, the, the make that, it was in, ultimately in reference to Mazda, to Ahura Mazda, uh -huh. but it, it resonates. I just had this experience. I see a sign and it's like, boom, you know, and it like kind of moved, you know, and it's like a, a bell going off, you know. And the ideas connect. And the ideas connect and they connect through resonance. It's not like a logical connection. It's like, if I make it logical, that's where delusion and paranoia lie. Oh, 
Uhura Mazda is real and is letting me know that he's real by giving me this sign. Okay, well, that's a story about the resonance. But the resonance is just the resonance. And we, we want it to mean, we don't know what to do with this excess of meaning, so we tell a story about it. And then the story becomes more important than the resonance. So where I like to come from is where you're like, you're really open to the resonance, but you're, you hold the stories about the resonance very lightly. And so you don't get too caught up in what the story might be or even what the resonance might be. You know? So there's a, it's a kind of a, it's a balancing act. It's kind of like an aesthetic uh, balancing act. So yeah, I think I, I really use that a lot to sort of navigate life and, and with people too. I mean, I'm, I, I, when I meet people, it usually has to be in the, in the flesh, but when I meet people, I can pretty much tell in like about five seconds whether they're real, I'm really going to like them or not. I mean, I might like them fine and enjoy talking to them, but they're not on that level. But if I'm going to really like them, I really like them right away, like bammo. Like, oh yeah, this is one of those people I'm really going to like. And trying to respect that, those feelings, but not get too dogmatic about it. It's like a tangible energy. Yeah, I have to say that so. That person's giving off good vibes. Or even more like there's something there, like there's good, because there's people who just have good vibes, but it's not necessarily going to resonate with me, because sometimes it's the way people are twisted that resonates with me. I mean, you can resonate in a, you know, in a, in a screwed up way. Like I might have, a, like I have a set, you know, neuroses or a particular forms of insecurity or particular self-narratives that are really negative. And I can meet someone who feeds off that or who, who likes to trigger that. And there's a kind of resonance there too. It's like my own you know, capacity to feel bad in this particular way can be triggered by certain kinds of people. And so that's also, whereas other people who might be also not, maybe not good people, I'd just be like, oh, that guy's a jerk. I don't want to have anything to do with them. But there's someone else who's got a sort of glow because it, it feeds my own you know, people do this in relationships all the time. It's like we have friends or even ourselves um, who, you know, they go through relationships and it's like from the outside, you can say, God, they keep falling. They keep being the same kind of person who screws them over in the same kind of way or ends up being a mess in the same kind of way. Well, that feeling that they must have when they meet someone new who's going to let them reproduce the same problem is a lot like resonance. It's like, yeah, this is the one or like, yeah, this is where the juice is. So that's why it's like, it's just the fact that resonance is happening is not, <laughs> is not itself a sign that the, the, the influence is altogether benign. Uh, so I think we need to keep that balance of like a resonating heart, but also a discerning uh, mind going. Absolutely. I've been spending a lot of time on resonance as well, doing prep for this interview. And I think I still need to spend a lot more time on it to understand it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun one. It, it, it gives a lot, you know, and especially if you're a musician or you're, you're really into certain kinds of music, like there's certain kinds of music, overtone music, overtone chanting, um, where you, you start to really hear your, your resonance. And so you can, you can move through it on an energetic way. So if you, if you listen to a lot of drone music, you know, for example, like Lamont Young is this classic a uh, highbrow mystical composer who uses a lot of just intonation. So there's a lot of like strange resonances in the music. And so you can kind of, you can, you can explore resonance in a lot of different domains and yet they all 
forgive the uh, the pun resonate you know so they resonate on different levels like physical the res the resonance of, fi of physical waves resonates with the kind of resonance we we describe in poetry or when we're reading um you know a book of philosophy and there's a certain line that hits us yeah. you know and they're all so it's you're kind of like inviting this sort these sort of connections uh in and i think that's a lot of what magic is like to 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 live a magical life to be open to magic to to practice magic is partly to practice uh resonance how um things move between symbolic literal phenomenological unconscious and maybe cosmic registers uh and it, that that doesn't mean you're actually like you know doing a spell and invoking gods and things like that it's really almost about like deepening a kind of poetic sensibility as you and using it as a way to actually navigate uh experience yeah including conversation in itself absolutely and I think conversation can be like jazz with riffing or more structured and polished, hitting on major talking points. What attracted you to the more open and free flowing, like prepared but not scripted form of conversation and even podcasting? I will be honest with you, laziness. <laughs> so when the first time I gave a public talk, and I'm kind of like a natural talker, like it's not hard for me to t talk in front of people. I'm, pro I'm more comfortable talking to a crowd than I am at a cocktail party. Like I, I'm, I'm, it's just, I've never had been, had that kind of fear of speaking in front of people the way that a lot of people do. So the first time I gave a public talk, it was called the Philip K. Dick's Postmodern Gnosis. And it was like 1991 and it was about Dick and you know, all the stuff I had written about in my senior thesis. And uh, maybe it was even early. No, it was earlier. It was like 89. And, uh, uh, you know, I prepared a lot, you know, I wrote it all out and wrote these notes and da, 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 da. And then I like, you know, and I gave the talk and it was fun. And I was like, wow, I'm going to be doing this a lot in my life. And then I went, I went right away. I went, dude, if you get good at riffing this stuff, you don't have to work as hard, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay. So like, if I get good at jazz or I get good at my own kind of jazz, then I can just just stress out less and I can work less and, and, and the work will be in the moment. And then, you know, and then that's just one level. Another level is that when it's good, it's really unexpected. You're like suddenly saying something I've never thought before uh, or, and, and it's like, wow, you know, and it also crashes. Um, so uh, in terms of public speaking now more than the podcast conversation thing, I guess is what I'm, what I'm thinking of in terms of spontaneity. Um, and the other thing I've discovered, which is good and bad, is that w be because I free form it, you know, I kind of know where I'm going. I have like a, like a, you know, maybe a single page with like five or six words on it that show that like the arc of the talk, like I have an arc, usually not always, but almost always kind of know where I'm going. Um, what I found is that when I do that loosely, I start to uh, re resonate with the crowd. So if it's a really good crowd, people are attentive, they're interesting, they're weird, they are come from different angles, they've had rich experiences, that's a pretty good talk. But when it's not, like I've given talks at like academic conferences where like most of the people are hostile and bored, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there for another reason. I'm just, they just have to sit through me to get to the thing they care about. I'm not very good. At least I don't enjoy it very much. Maybe I'm still okay, but I'm not, it's not alive. So there's a way in which, and you know, jazz music, musicians talk about this all the time. You really do feed back the energy of the crowd. And I think in a conversation, there's something like that as well. That if you're, if you're, if you're flowing, you're feeding each other and, and it, it can really, you know, it can drive it kind of like a, like a circuit. And it's also, it's more full of surprise. Like you've, I think, you know, some of the questions you've asked, you, you had prepared, like you had kind of focused in on, here's some things I want to throw out there. But I received it as a surprise. Uh, whereas if you had sent me those in advance, then I would have like, oh, my brain would have gone, oh, yeah, resonance, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, but now I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. And so maybe I'll say something new. Uh, put, put the connections together in a new way. And then in turn, you and your listeners hear that freshness. And, and it, it's more fun. You know, it's, yeah. more, it's more enjoyable when, it, when it's not scripted. I agree. And I love that you're open to doing that. And that's, you've said before that the vulnerability of podcasting is part of what's attractive about it. And I think it's at the root of good conversation and relationships as well. What do you think the beauty is in sharing in our vulnerabilities? Oh yeah. That's, I think about that one a lot because, you know, I'm, uh, that it's a really interesting balance for me because now I've been doing this for so long that I'm, I don't know what you call, I, I'm a cult author, you know, like I got my fans, there aren't that many of them, but they're really into it. And then there's like an, another sort of layer of people who respect me, you know, think it's kind of interesting to pay attention to whatever. So, you know, on some level, I'm a public figure, I'll be a, a pretty minor one in, in comparison with people who, you know, have huge followings. But it's enough that I'm aware of having a kind of public avatar. Mm -hmm. And I've been writing this guy for a long time since I started doing those public talks in 89. So it's 30 years of being kind of a public figure at a certain personality who was kind of looking for the others. Like I wanted to, my, my work has always been directed sort of like, you know, at the bigger world, but, but really specifically at this sort of sense of a tribe of like-minded weirdos who have had similar experiences or are interested in similar kinds of things and kind of weaving them together, you know, paranormal world, spiritual world, psychedelic world, uh, you know, weird fiction, uh, technology and the subcultures and fantasy and science fiction and, you know, all these different worlds like to kind of weave it together as a space. Um, So then I'm in this interesting situation where if I don't, if I'm never actually vulnerable, it becomes like a caricature. It becomes too safe. It becomes a little dead. It becomes uh, instrumental. You know, if like if I just invent, you know, if I just maintained a mask, and there were there were very strong rules about what was allowed on the surface of the mask and what is not allowed on the surface of the mask. If those r- rules are too set, I'm not really vulnerable anymore, and the performance dot, it gets less interesting and it's less interesting for me because I'm, I'm not, I'm not risking anything, you know, risk to me is extreme, extremely important. On the other hand, I'm kind of a private person and I'm, I can be a little paranoid. So I don't want to share that much, you know? Uh, and 
but partly because I started out on the internet really early and I was part of that utopian first wave of like full sharing. Like we're going to create a new community of, of sharing amidst all the flame wars and all the other stuff. But like there was this sense of like, I'm p putting it out there and I just kind of never stopped. So I, I, you know, nowadays I mean, there, I would be much more hesitant about, you know, going, going online and, you know, putting whatever, putting myself out there because it's it, in, on some level, I'm just giving the algorithms better information about how to profile me. So in a way, there's a there's a kind of other sort of risk involved that is just fact, just there. It's like there there there's more known knowable about me than people who are really. And I meet people who are very wary. Don't go online. Don't build up a profile on Twitter. You know they don't like it, and I don't like it either. Really, I mean, I just I just became a public person, and I just never decided to interrupt it. Um, and and to so so it's a real balance. Um, and there's, and again, also I'm a, I'm a private person. So there's all, there's a lot of stuff I don't really like to talk about. And even though I've, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty open in conversation and podcasting, uh, there, I actually don't tell that many personal stories. Like I don't often go and like, here's the story of my life. Here's this other thing that happened to me. And here's this, uh, uh, relationship trauma and here's this stuff. I try to like still maintain a sense of privacy that itself is kind of vulnerable, but then allow it to, to uh, impinge on my public performance so that there is still a risk. There is still a dice roll. And I, that thing about risk is, is really key to me. And, and it's something I, I wonder about how, uh, it, how much that's changing, you know, generationally. I, I think what we can both agree on is just the fact that without risk, we're going to lose out on a lot of innovation. Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I mean, innovation, that's a funny word these days. Cause it's like, I'm, I'm into it. Uh, but it's also got a sort of like, uh, kind of a little, little capitalist, uh, overlay, uh, with, with it as well that I'm, I, yeah, maybe I should say art. Maybe I should just say art. Yeah. Yeah. And also I just, just psychologically, you know, um, uh, and that's a real generational di difference. You know, I noticed that with, with, uh, with millennials and, and, and lower that there's just a very different sense about the value of kinds of risk. And I've come to really recognize that there are, you know, things I don't see about that. And that also I've come from a very privileged position. So like I was saying, you know, earlier we were talking about growing up on the one hand, I was able to risk psychological challenges, uh, taking big, you know, doses of acid and, and wandering through the whatever and, and uh, you know, encountering challenges and uh, you know, exploring, adventuring, you know, we, we were adventuring. And on the other hand, it wasn't that risky. If the cops got pulled us over or, or got us and we had weed in our pockets, they would just confiscate it. You know, so if I, you know, if I was growing up in a city and I was black, my encounter with the cops would be altogether different situation. So I have to recognize that my sense of risk is also coming from a place of, of safety in a weird way, in, or not even in a weird way, just in, a, in, in some ways I, I was... It's, it's set up for me to have certain kinds of adventures that actually aren't as risky as a lot of other things that people have to put up to. So I, I think it's important to remember that. That said, um, I, I think it's really healthy to sort of constantly remind yourself that the world is a fragile, shifting 
place that the rug is always being tugged out from under us and to get okay with like throwing ourselves into into challenge and there's so many mechanisms that are keeping us from that kind of confrontation in ourselves in the things we do in the world you know if you go traveling you know you have your cell phone and you can just figure out all the things by reading the reviews and going here and going there and and it's just like as opposed to showing up someplace when you just had no idea where you're going to stay and like oh i got to find it out and and that kind of stumbling which can be a drag it can be scary and it can be uh, incredibly illuminating and and it's the way you sort of um, stock chance, you know, the, and, uh, that kind of stocking becomes harder and harder to do when we're encased in all this safety. And especially the way kids are brought up now, like I just can't imagine it. I mean, I grew up with tons of free time, tons of unstructured time. And I, I know that things are different. I'm not going, Oh, it's better before kids. You know, I don't know. I can't really compare it, but, uh, but I do think that risk you know, in certain ways is, is a, is a real, uh, is a real medicine. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot to be gained from taking the scenic route and allowing for some serendipity. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the secret sauce or the elements that link the garage philosophers in your book, High Weirdness? Um, yeah, I'm talking about these, uh, three guys, uh, Terrence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, and Philip K. Dick. And I've been into them all for a long time, but especially uh, Phil Dick and, and, and Wilson back to the mid eighties uh, and Terrence a little bit later. And there are all these sort of crazy psychedelic visionary philosopher, writer, kooks, uh, skeptical gurus, you know, they, they share a certain kind of, I think a mixture of ironic skepticism and, visionary conviction and a hunger for the unknown. Uh, and I, th I think even just the idea of a garage philosopher is a way of talking about the secret sauce. What does that mean? It means that it's like um, un illegitimate philosophy, you know, philosophy now that as a term is it, you know, it's a department in the university. Most people who are quote unquote philosophers are actually historians of philosophy or they do philosophy. And when you get, and when you learn philosophy in a formal sense, you go to school and you learn about the history of it and how it evolves and the major questions and blah, blah, blah. And that all makes you very, uh, you know, academic, yeah, academic, and you're kind of trained, you know, like, or, or you're, you, and so what does it mean to ask those questions when you have no legitimacy, when you're in the garage, like you're a garage rock band, it means you can still be adolescent, you know, like a garage rock band, it's like, who, no one cares, you can just, you can play the same three chord, uh, you know, Louie Louie tune for an hour and a half, and nobody cares, but you can get somewhere. You can find yourself somewhere new and somewhere new that other people resonate with, partly because it gets there in a raw way. You might not want to go back to that tune. You might realize later on that it's, that it's rote, that it's repetitive, that it's already been done. But in that energy, in that moment, in that performance, and even in the recording that other people listen to, it can be really powerful. And so I, there's something about the, the, the uh, encouragement to just go where you want to go. Um, even if it's adolescent and crude sometimes, 
you talk a lot about Terrence and Dennis McKenna, and they describe themselves as big picture people who wanted the answers to the ultimate questions. Is this the underlying slogan for psychedelics, why they call some people to help them get closer to some of these answers? Yeah, I think with, with, with psychedelics, you know, uh, uh, people get, can get caught up in, their an, in searching for an answer. What's the answer? What's the message? What's the image? Whereas I think there's another level where it's about going through layers of not knowing and questioning and confrontation, and that that's always paralleling the kind of story of what's being discovered. Um, or that what's being discovered is like is essentially a mystery. So whatever we know about it, wh- however much experience we gain over time, and clearly like there are elders in this community, and there are obviously elders in indigenous and spiritual cultures that have been really doing the work for decades and decades and decades. And they're, they're you know there's there's a wisdom factor there. There's a knowingness there. There's something about a a deeper familiarity that you don't have as a young person or a naive person or someone who is never committed to actually learning. When you commit yourself to learning, you learn. But in the end, or what are we actually getting closer to? In my experience, it's more, it's a more profound sense of what we don't know and what it feels like to be in the face of, of a mystery that we can't limb, you know, we can't wrap up. Uh, So, you know, but, but that drive to want to have that experience, I think, you know, it's, it's the same thing as the drive to explore. Um, And I do believe that at least for some of us, it's a very powerful uh, one. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people will turn to psychedelics in the first place or ancient schools of philosophy like Buddhism. Do you think Buddhism can help psychedelic seekers? And on the other side of that coin, can psychedelics help Buddhist seekers? Yeah, I've been, I've been involved, uh, for almost two years now in a, in a group called psychedelic Sangha that was started by some friends in, in New York and they have a real thriving chapter, uh, in New York. They do a lot of fun events and I've been doing a monthly, uh, a meetup at uh, a Dharma center here in San Francisco. That's uh, where we, you know, talk and meditate together. And uh, yeah, I'm really interested in this overlap. I mean, it's called the psychedelic Sangha, not because I believe, uh, you know, in, in Buddhism, you have the three treasures, the, the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And I'm not really sure if psychedelics is, I don't, I'm not sure if the Buddha was a psychedelicist. The Buddha did try everything at one point before he found his way, and I am sure that if there were drugs around, he would have taken them, and there were drugs around those days that seekers would take datura, there was hashish, there were probably other things, there might have been mushrooms for all we know. So it doesn't surprise me that if that psychedelics were around that the Buddha would have tried them in his during his search, but I don't think where he wound up really requires the psychedelics in any way, and I don't think the Dharma is psychedelic necessarily and maybe there's parts of it that psychedelics can help you understand but in other ways it, they're very distracting and they probably get in the way of a lot of stuff too but the psychedelic sangha meaning people who are have one foot in the dharma world and one foot in the psychedelic world that's real that exists that's been part of the west for you know generations now since at least the 1950s and in some ways earlier so the whole in, you know, entrance of Buddhism into the West is partly greased by psychedelics. 
So I honor that tradition and I continue to believe it's valuable to work in that overlap zone, that kind of heretical, uh, marginal space. Uh, and I do think that there's something to be, that, that each one has for the other. I think Buddhism provides, um, ideally, a, a quality of discernment uh, that psychedelics, psychedelic culture often lacks. Uh, and, and, and vice versa, I think the psychedelics provide a juiciness and a, an encounter with mystery and an awesomeness that mere practice can sometimes miss. And I think some people get dry or, or they lose touch or they think they know or they think they're on the path or they think they've got, you know, so it's good to shake up the snow globe. It's good to bow down to mystery sometimes. Um, and so I think that there's a, a really nice uh, feedback between those, those things. Yeah. Is there anything you want to remain weird, but fear it becoming common and the weirdness wearing off? Well, you know, I think once you're, once you're asking that question, in some sense, it's already too late. Like the idea, you know, there's, there's, there's signs around, I think Portland has one, you know, keep Portland weird. And you're like, wow, but if you're already at, you know, calling for that, like, it's probably already too late. And, and if, if, if you, that becomes like overly fetishized and a lot of the things that were really weird before, aren't that weird anymore, you know, conspiracy theory, we're all kind of familiar with it before, but you know, in the 1980s, you started getting conspiracy theory. That was weird stuff. You had to like get out of the main line. Most people didn't know what you were talking about, you know, talking about whatever UFO stuff or deep states or what they call deep state stuff then that, but whatever. Uh, and, but now everybody knows about it. it's online, you know, it's like whatever. So there's a lot of things like that, partly through the internet, partly because all subcultures are visible. Um, there's a lot of things behind it. And in some ways, I think it's hard to find that, that weirdness. I think the, what, what's really key is again, we were talking about resonance earlier is like, is to develop a kind of sense organ for the weird, which means that when something is peculiar, unpleasant, maybe, uh, uh, disturbingly mysterious, odd, bizarre, you go towards it carefully. And that might be in your own experience. Like right now, we're in a weird experience. Well, go into that. What is it that's weird? What does it feel like? What is connected to that feeling? You know, we, we, use, we can use the weird as a way of like being okay with the, some of the strangeness of life, some of the difficulties in life by becoming interested with how it challenges our our view of reality. Um, so in that sense, I don't think the weird ever goes away, nor do I think anomalous experiences will ever stop happening. Whatever our model of the world, there are going to be things that happen in our lives that just blow our minds, that we just have nowhere to put. And that that reality of anomaly is part of the weirdness that's stitched into existence. Weird culture, that'll come and go. You know, H.P. Lovecraft is not as weird as H.P. Lovecraft was in the 1940s or the 1960s or even the 1980s when I first started reading him. It's, it's, yeah. it's too out there. And it means too present in, in, in woven in and, and everything. So you can still have those experiences through it, but it's harder to get to. So the culture, I think, shifts, but the weirdness continues. And the weirdness does continue, especially when you go from a written book to a audio version, the resonance comes to life. There's a different sort of responsibility there. What did you notice? Yeah, that was really fun. I had wanted to do, I wanted to read my own books for a while. Like I, I almost 
read Technosis when it came out in its last edition in 2015, and I just was too busy writing High Weirdness, and I didn't and I didn't do it, which you know I partly regret, but it's it's okay. Um, but you know the guy, people make mistakes; they don't know how to pronounce things. They don't, you know, it's just it's not ideal. Uh, and then uh, my Led Zeppelin book this guy with a real kind of radio voice read it. And that was really bad. I really would have liked to have done it myself. That would have been fun. So this one, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I had to, I had to, uh, you know, apply. I had to go through the, 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 uh, you know, act like a reader because in general, uh, audiobook producers don't want the authors to read it. That's sort of the, the standard ideas that authors are bad readers. So I had to prove myself and they said, okay, you can do it. And, um, I really enjoyed it and I tried to be have fun with it. Like I use funny accents for some of the quotes and I tried to do a little bit of a Terrence accent and stuff. So I have, you know, I have some fun with it, but I think it, it, uh, it, it's, it's actually just more accessible for people, especially with this book where you're, if you're reading on the page, there's some parts that are really dense and full of, you know, theoretical ideas and whatever. And you're just like, what am I reading? I mean, I even feel that way. Sometimes I read, I'm like, what am I talking about? But, uh, but when you're listening, you know, you just kind of go along. My voice is kind of engaging. And then soon enough, because I never spend too much time with that stuff, you're back to the story. And so I think the story part of it comes through more. It's more like a somewhere between a story and like a class. Like it's more like I'm hearing a lecturer doing, in, talking about all this interesting stuff that where I go all over the place. Whereas in a book, it's just so dense and overwhelming. It's kind of hard to to get through for a lot of people again, including myself. So, so anyway, I was real, I was real blast and people seem to like it a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that came out. That's awesome, man. And I'm glad you read it yourself because you do have an engaging voice. You're, you know, you're easy to listen to. I know we got to wrap up. What would we find on your Spotify search history? Oh, wow. I didn't, wasn't ready for that one. Uh, let's see. Recently I've been listening to uh, aquarium drunkard free radio which is a new radio stream that these guys who put out a wonderful mailing list uh and and mix you know rare mixes and i think they have a serious uh show as well so they're just like record nerds who have a lot of similar flavors so i definitely encourage people to check out it's a radio stream on you know whatever app through, through apple or whatever called it aquarium drunkard free radio so i've been listening a lot to that a lot of British Brit folk lately. I've been trying to listen to nourishing music, stuff that like I've I know well and I've spent a lot of time with. That's sort of comfortable, but also honoring the range of emotions, including sadness and challenge and you know dark feelings. And so I've been listening to a lot of moody moody folk. Uh, yeah, that'll that'll that'd be some recent stuff. Awesome. And then if you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? Yeah, let's see. I'm reading uh, a book of Clark Ashton Smith's Zofique stories. And he is a weird fiction writer, a compatriot of, uh, of the Weird Tales crew, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Uh, he's from California. So he's a, he's a local boy, my homeboy. And uh, they're, they're wonderful D&D, dark, twisted D&D-like stories. But he's a beautiful writer. And he has this incredible vocabulary, like the most wide vocabulary of probably anybody I've read except for Joyce or something like that. He uses a lot of antique words, but he uses them correctly. Like he actually knows what he's talking about. So that, that's a blast. And I'm reading, I've finally gotten around to a book that um, I had a number of recommendations uh, about that I never got around to by uh, 
Christopher Gray called The Acid Diaries. And it's about, he, he was, he's like a boomer generation and it, you know, did, had tripped a lot when he was a young man, had some terror trips. But then late in life, when he's around 60, he starts tripping again with acid and doing it more methodically. And it's about his journey with it. And it's really fascinating. It's, you know, uh, it's a, a really good, uh, like a non-youth version of going through these, these realms. And he's a wonderful writer. Uh, and I'm enjoying that. And let me see, is there anything else? Um, yeah, and then I'm just I'm reading some other histories of, of LSD. Thanks for those recommendations. So if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Okay, so I thought about this one a lot. When I get these kind of weird prompts, you know, I, I immediately start like riffing on them, like not just trying to answer it, but like, why that? What about that? What about that? Like, you know, you know, and some of it's like, well, do I, you know, if I, if I had the language to be able to speak to like, you know, uh, Lao Tzu or something like, yeah. but I'm so different then that like, I can't even, so it's hard to think about things really deep in the past. And then I thought about like, well, what if you like, there's someone you've always been fascinated with, but they, they turn out to be a blowhard. That would be so disappointing. Like John D like, Oh my God, I want to meet John D. And you go back there and he's kind of this craggy kind of like, doesn't, doesn't care. Doesn't want to give you the time of day. And you're like, Oh man, I wasted it on. I thought this guy was gonna be great. And I thought, what, what about like a spiritual person? Like someone who's like, like Ramakrishna who came to mind, like, like whatever people say about him, you meet this guy and you're like overwhelmed with this, with the vibe. But what, what, again, you know, you, you choose that and you're like, oh, but what if it doesn't resonate? You know, you're like, oh, the guy's just some crazy dude and he just happened to inspire a lot of people, but it's not working for me. And now we don't need to talk about it because it's not that interesting. So I, I had to say, I, 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 I kind of was thinking like, well, what would be really valuable no matter who they were? And I am kind of haunted by my, uh, my, my great grandfather on my paternal side. I, ne I never met him. He died many decades before I was born. He was a mysterious, he seems like a haunted, driven person in his photographs. I've read a bunch of letters he wrote, and he was definitely a, a bit of a twisty character. At some point, I'll write about it. Um, uh, he, you know, he was a heroin user, but I don't really know the whole story. And I realized that even though that's not that exotic or, or uh, you know, intellectually uh, courageous or anything, I would be really interested to meet him to get a sense of where that guy was coming from. Even if it's weird, like I'd be like, okay, now I know myself more. <laughs> so that's my answer. All right, cool. So you got the audio version of High Weirdness is out. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, www.technosis.com. Uh, haven't been posting there quite as much as in the past, but it's an immense archive of my stuff, including uh, recordings to all, a lot of my podcasts that I was doing for a long time. Uh, and uh, yeah, Psychedelic Song is going to be going online uh, for this month, maybe who knows for a couple months. Uh, and um, there's uh, uh, that will be through the San Francisco Dharma Collective. So if you go to their site, they have a, a Zoom link uh, for all the classes. So I'll be doing that this Saturday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So that might be fun to tune into. Well, I'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on the show, man. This was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.